Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. I'm Stephen Hausman, your host and an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. My guest today is Dr. Karen Jones, a professor of environmental and cultural history and the director of the Center for the Study of Health, Science, and Environment at the University of Kent. Dr. Jones is the author of many books and articles on environmental history and on the history of the American West, including her latest, Calamity, The Many Lives of Calamity Jane, which came out with Yale University Press last year in 2020. Welcome to the New Books Network, Karen. Thank you very much, Steve. It's really good to be here. Why don't we begin, like we traditionally do here on the New Books Network, by just hearing about yourself. Tell us a little bit about you and your background and how you became interested in history and especially how you became interested in the history of the American West. Okay, well, I I grew up in the the west of England, not the west of the the United States, um, which has a, a, you know, has a reputation as as quite a laid back place, a rural place. Um, so I spent my my formative years in a in a in a very in a, in a different but sort of similar West in 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 some ways, um, and I, w- I always had an interest in history and geography. So I was sort of very much an an outdoors person. Uh, I studied at the University of Warwick um, as an undergraduate, and then took a master's program at the University of Bristol, both in in the UK. And it was during my master's program that I became particularly interested in frontier spaces. So North American frontier, but also Southern Africa. And those were the courses that really ignited my interest in in thinking about the uh, environmental politics and cultural politics of of conquest and and in the 19th century. Um, And it was through that master's program that I went on to do a, a doctorate which was centered on environmental history so i got to calamity jane somewhat curiously by working on wolves which does not sound like an an, an obvious uh, transition but i i uh wrote wrote a um, a doctoral thesis which became my first book wolf mountains all about the dynamics of of wolf eradication and reintroduction restoration in um in national parks in the US and Canadian West in, in Glacier, Yellowstone, Banff and Jasper. So I, I was really, you know, in that program, um, in the master's program and in this doctoral project, I, I think it my interests were very much focused upon thinking about trans environmental transformation and the and also the the cultural environment of the West and what that meant symbolically and in folklore terms. And of course the, the wolf has it's uh, it, it has a, a pretty striking folkloric profile of its own. And I I wondered as a as a uh, early career researcher further into that world by thinking through um, hunting rituals and performance and, 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 and writing on 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 that particular engagement with the West between you know, sport hunters and 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 animals. And I, and I guess it was there really that I encountered Calamity Jane most 
fully as as a as, a, as an intriguing subject to study because I you know I'd heard I'd heard about Calamity Jane I mean everybody's heard of Calamity Jane right you know certainly as a as a as a figure I mean, most people that that I've certainly talked to in this project have um, assumed her to be a, a construction of Hollywood you know a, f- a fictitious character but it was in this hunting project that I. I started to think about her as um, a figure who operated in a really masculine world and engaged in activities that that were regarded as as typically masculine pursuits. So, so in the hunting project, it was really thinking through her her place in the sort of canon of of frontiers men. Um, and uh, and she she popped up in that project as one of uh, a number of of kind of transgressive women if you like who were involved in the um the the practice and the memorialization of um hunting in 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 the US west but she she kind of only really appeared there as a as a minor character in this this story of um transgression I suppose and it was it was really through talking to my publisher and also um just exploring that a little bit more in my teaching you know teaching on the American West for me has always been provided a great space for thinking imaginatively about the West and I I really do think that teaching and research go uh, so well together that, that the Debates and and conversations in the classroom are um, enlivened by, you know, looking at the most recent research in the area and equally feed back into that. So, you know, I taught Calamity Jane as a as a bastion of of my nineteenth um, century West course, um, and so she kind of came back into view uh, in in these different ways and and I guess I you know in being in being asked to think about um writing writing a new western project it it just struck me that she was a character who had much to say about the 19th century experience but also about how the west has been manufactured and repackaged and recycled uh, for different generations since the the time of its making if you like and, and and so for me it was it was her subversive qualities the fact that she was uh, you know operating in this male dominated world but also the allure of exploring the iconography and and the kind of the the, the layers of um enigma around her that that seemed to make for uh, a project that was rooted in history, but also um, allowed me to explore all different kinds of source materials and and you know wander into to various spaces in 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 the um, North American cultural imagination. 
Yeah, and and you mentioned um, this work kind of emerging out of your earlier work on hunting and ritual and folklore surrounding wolves and hunting. And when you said that, it was very clarifying. I can very much see see the the kind of one to one line that you drew there. Uh, you know, perhaps kind of a, 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 a not a straight line necessarily, but I can see the connection between those two ideas between Calamity Jane and the mythos surrounding her and the performances surrounding her, which we'll talk about in a little bit, mm. and what you're talking about with your earlier work on wolves. That's that's a very clear line to me. Yeah, I think it's it's that kind of teasing out that uh, the relationship between the the material engagement between people and the world around us and that sort of textured uh imaginative sometimes fairly wonky way that we interpret the spaces that we move through and and you know the then the other species and landscapes and other people who who fall into that into that story Critical biographies uh, such as this book are an interesting and I've never written one, but seemingly very challenging genre to write in. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the the process and the experience of researching and writing so much about a single individual, particularly an individual as you know historically elusive as Martha Jane Cannery uh, is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting one because I think. Uh, I, I in in the the hist the histories that I that that I've read and the the works that I've kind of been impressed with, and I I've very much been somebody who has focused on, I suppose, ideas and and liked uh, and liked scholarship that's that's taken creative and inventive directions and so for me the idea of writing a biography didn't immediately leap up as a as a cool idea because I guess biographical work has has um you know there's there are many great biographies but it but it also is regarded by some people as a territory that's you know can be really traditional it can be quite hagiographic and celebratory you know it can be quite dry um and 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 maybe um you know how do you how do you really position the story of one individual within a broader context and i think that that is that is a, the challenge of of um of sort of balancing the the personal with the contextual um but I, th- I think there have been a, a, a fair number of, of biographies, both about characters in the American West, but also elsewhere, that, that really have reinvented the genre in, in helpful and interesting ways to, to, to kind of stray from that path of, um, you know, being sort of textual champions of of whoever you're writing on uh but but to try to to see the the way in which individuals are, are threaded into their time and, and and speak to their time so um so i guess the first challenge is is making a biography that 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 speaks to now and 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 pulls the the genre um in into this more creative and inquiring and critical space 
Uh, and then on, you know, in a practical sense, um, I think you you have it's not you don't have to like the person you're writing about necessarily. Um, although you know, I think Martha Jane Cannery is is a pretty interesting character. You certainly have to be intrigued by them, you know, you because you're 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 encountering this person all the time. So there has to be something about their story that keeps you going back and wanting to find more. And and you know, I, I suppose that hopefully that comes through to the to the readers and thinking the the same things are interesting to read about that are interesting to write about. Um, she was she was particularly challenging because the biographical trace that she leaves behind is so fragmentary on one level, but also on another level, so rich and extensive. So, you know, her own, uh, it's not as though we have all these memoirs and this huge kind of um, archive of materials that, that's, that's left behind to sift through from her herself. You know, many, many biographers are, are writing with subjects who've consciously and deliberately left the the trail for the historian to to follow, but but she's not not one of those people. So um, that you know that made it tricky. But I think what really enlivened the project for me is the way in which, although she didn't leave a great deal of of um, material behind, you know, we by by all accounts she was probably illiterate. Uh, for one thing, so many people were writing about her in her lifetime. And then subsequently, you know, there's this massive corpus of material to draw from. So it then becomes a, an issue of not having not enough stuff, but having too much stuff. Um, I think it, it, I was helped in this project to some degree by by the biographers who've looked at her before. And there aren't many of them. Um, it, it must be said, but I think James McLaird's uh, biography was particularly instructive because, you know, he did that job of meticulously finding all the tiny facts about her life and and seeking to corroborate or not um, their their veracity so well. It, it enabled me to step to the side of that of age-old question, you know, did she do this? Did she not do that? And that, for me, was more, it was more interesting to focus not on the truth or the fiction and and sifting all the evidence into one or the other, but to look at how those ran in together and, and created this um, cultural cocktail that allowed her to to remain as such a, a critical figure in in frontier mythology for so long um and i think that that for me that made for a more interesting subject to work on to 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 sort of to track that choreography rather than get into the business of proving and and disproving things because that i think that's um in many cases that that's quite difficult to say when you're dealing with somebody Who's uh, uh, whose biographical trace is so fragmented, but about whom so many people have written kind of uh, contested stories. Um, 
I mean, the the other thing to note is that that you know the the American West is has such a a rich archival um, trace. Uh, it's you know it's it this this one of the lovely things about this project was the the small regional archives which have boxes of material and have you know all kinds of of interesting sources that that spoke to this project and and that was that was great being able to focus on that really quite i suppose traditional historical archival work for the 19th century stuff but then to come forward into the 20th century and be opened up to this sort of uh, popular culture avalanche of things that could be from wherever and and um you know go from uh you know raisin bran free toys in the, in the 1950s to um you know muppet show uh costumes in in the 70s and you know so it it, it was nice to have that that variety and I, I you know i never got bored of her um which really gives a sense i think about the the interesting nature of her her life and times and you know the the rich cultural afterlife that um continues to to swirl around her yeah and i thought that that was one of the 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 more more most compelling parts of the book was how you don't really silo out the the mythology from the like fact you know kind of scare quotes around both of those words right because yeah. you're uh, the way the way i read it is that you're making the point to an extent here that you know the 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 mythos around here is just as much a part of who calamity jane is to us today as the reality and so as you said a second ago it's a bit of a fool's errand and kind of misses the point to try to do that sort of debunking work and that's not mm. to say that you shy away from from the truth of her story when when you can access it but you know you'll also say and this is what this particular biographer said and this is what this particular myth or or you know possibly not exactly accurate story said about her and i i really appreciated how all of those threads were woven throughout the story i thought that was really it was unique and it was it made for an interesting read mm, thank you oh, i'm really glad you liked it i remember one of um one of the uh, kind of historiographical nuggets that has always stayed with me when you know when you're looking at the theory of history and and such like was um um cultural historian arthur marwick talking about myth and history and and the fact that you know it doesn't matter whether myth is a falsehood or not it's all about what what power it has um and you know i think in the in 21st century we're palpably and probably sometimes disturbingly made aware of of how true that is and and I guess that again that connection between the 19th century and and the now shows that those sorts of threads of perception of reality are you know are ever ever present well let's get into Jane's life a bit um and why don't we, I mean, perhaps it goes without saying, but let's begin at the start. What do we know about, about Calamity Jane's early life? And what is, where, where does, where do the facts sort of blend into the, the, the myth that we're talking about here in her early life? Sure, sure. So she's, she's, she's usually quoted as being born in, on one of two dates. Uh, so it's always May the 1st, and it's either 1852 or 1856. 
and these these two uh, dates kind of vie for um, uh, the, the sort of truthfulness in in the historical record. Um, the the working backwards, the um, census material that was discovered by a historian in the nineteen forties suggests that she was born in eighteen fifty six to Robert and Charlotte Cannery in in Missouri. Um, they were uh, uh, they were part of a a family who'd moved successively from Virginia to Ohio and had, were re- recent settlers in Missouri. And, and and this is so we see Jane first in this uh, population census where she's a young girl and working backwards from that document, we can um, hazard that she was born probably in, in 1856. Um, she, we, you know, we don't know a great deal about her, her early life because what happened in her story is that of course once she became notorious then her um early commentators and early biographers dragged dragged the story back and tried to find people who knew her as a child and of course they're filtering their memories through the experience of of the calamity jane of the um of of the sort of her her popular profile by that time um you know so there are tales of her being uh, a kind of a feral child and and because she has she she's given a backstory to to substantiate her later reputation in this sort of uh, gossip culture i suppose we we would call it um so beyond that we don't really know a great deal about her we know that her she um, was the oldest of, of, of six children and that her family then made the decision um, or her father made the decision to move from Missouri to the uh, American West, to the, the mineral lands um, of, of Montana, to Virginia City. And this was sometime in the early 1860s. Uh, we know this because her next record or next important record is um turning up on the doorstep of of um a, a local um figure in december 1864 three young girls um looking for, fairly disheveled in the snow asking for poor relief asking for assistance and this was in virginia city so so she's as many many people did, she's part of that demographic movement which um, makes successive jumps to what they hoped would be prosperous farming land in in the Midwest, and then gets uh, captivated by the mineral fever, fever and 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 moves to Montana, where we where we find her as. Um, yeah, as as a, as a youth, her, both both of her parents die uh, in 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 the eighteen sixties as well, leaving her um, orphaned. And it's in this kind of context that she learns to 
live hand to mouth and and take on different jobs and 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 is you know living on the margins of this fluid frontier society trying to make ends meet and there you know there are conflicting stories about what happens to her and where she goes what happens to her parents uh, conflicting stories about who her parents were um as well so you know she's uh, right from the very beginning the idea of uh, specific information and accurate information about her is is not there. There's just claim and counterclaim and dates and places and people flying around all over the place. And in the 1870s, Jane has several experiences, some verifiable, some uh, we could say somewhat less verifiable, that, that would come to, to define her, for better or for worse, as a Western icon. So how did Jane, for instance, arrive in the Black Hills? Uh, what did she do there and really across the American West during the 1880s and, and 1870s that, that, like I said, would come to, to define her as this kind of iconic figure? Sure. So she... she... From this point in Virginia City, she kind of pops up in various places, um, mining towns, railroad towns, ad hoc settlements. And she is she's located in the Black Hills in 1875. That's where we find the first photograph of her. Uh, she's pictured lounging on a rock. She's wearing men's clothes. Um, so that, you know, already all the kind of critical ingredients of her legend are in place, that she's in this, um, you know, rugged frontier space. She's photographed with a photographer travelling with the army and she's wearing um, uh, male attire. So we know that she she is, she's travelling with, you know, she's moving in these these different frontier spaces and then she she finds herself travelling with the army in the um, mid-1870s. She's recorded uh, as part of the Newton-Jenny expedition and travelling with um, General Crook's entourage in in 1876. So she she becomes a fixture of that military culture, and people start talking about her because she's interesting and curious and and, and, and unusual because of her her dress, um, and you know this is this is the time period where she begins to tell stories or or she sort of backdates in in, in later years stories um, to this time where she talks of scouting for Custer. Um, indulging in all all kinds of heroic exploits, uh, saving a captain from from ambush, which is how she gets the name Calamity Jane, heroine of the plains, for for, for saving him. And again, this is all mired in in folklore and and, and um, disputed by people along the way. So this uh, this she she emerges as this. Um, yeah, this this intriguing, unusual figure, uh, and becomes a part of military chatter. She she uh, appears in Jack Crawford's poetry. She's talked about a lot, so she she becomes a a, a subject of conversation for the military in the eighteen seventies period. In the, in in the the kind of the middle part of that 
that decade. Uh, what we know is that she was never on the army payroll. She was certainly spotted travelling with the with the army. M- most likely, she was doing freighting. She was uh, cooking. Uh, what what they called a camp follower, um, possibly a prostitute, doing laundry. Again, all of those hand to mouth jobs where she can, um, trying to make ends meet. And you mentioned that one of the the things that makes Jane uh, notable in, to 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 other people in the American West early on, uh, and indeed something that she's still well known for today, it's part of her part of her legend and her status as this Western icon was for wearing men's clothing. Can you talk a little bit about the the dynamics of gender and indeed uh, gender performance in the West, and what Jane's story tells us about the possibilities and indeed the limits of gender expression at the end of the nineteenth century in the United States? Sure, sure. And I think actually this is one of the areas where, you know, I was really, really persuaded in in writing this book that there's there's so, there's a much bigger story here, much bigger story that uh, that that that's out there for for historians of of gender to to really explore and deconstruct and and, and excavate in important and um, stimulating ways. One of the interesting things to to me was coming across so many references to women who were passing as men in, in the gold fields. There are, you know, some great testimonials about, um, about uh, women being barred from, from claims because, you know, there were so many women passing as men um, comments about Horace Greeley traveling across country and, and talking about the fine chap that he spent time talking to, for the conductor to to turn around later in the journey and and point out that that uh, the fine chap was actually a woman. Um, I, I just think there's there's a real rich and interesting, uh, you know, his, historical um, story to be about which we 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 know fragments. We know about particular individuals, but I think there's 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 much more to be said. And and you know, Calamity Jane has been seen by some as a, if you like, as an unrepresentative character in the West that, you know, she doesn't speak to the everyday lives of of women, really, because she's an exception, she's an oddity. And, and actually, in, in um, working on this project, I was increasingly convinced that her unorthodoxies and her um the, the the way in which she pushes back against the some of the normative assumptions about gender and identity in 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 the west um you know maybe she's not actually that unrepresentative uh in, in many ways because certainly we know that women passed as men for all kinds of reasons to take advantage of economic opportunity, like in the the case of the um, the miners I mentioned before, uh, to escape abusive relationships, to travel clandestinely, to you know to to get away from people as disguise. Then um, also to uh, enact to inhabit um alternative gender identities or um sexual orientation 
you know, so the West is a is a more fluid and, and a more open space for for people to reinvent themselves, if you like. Um, and of course, you know, it, it's certainly true to say that in terms of security, it was much safer for for women to travel disguised as men than to travel as women um, in in these years. So, you know, the the motivations for for passing a, um, a many and and to have you know the whole spectrum of different rationales behind them and I think you know Calamity Jane's story Martha Cannery's story speaks to a few of those but but by no means all of them but she's a good window into a world which was marked yeah it was marked by opportunity in the sense that as a you know a woman traveling on your own in the 19th century west if you disguise as a man you're immediately kind of invisible in a way that means you can um travel freely claim you know various economic and and, and political um, advantages which are reserved only for men in those times but there are also there are also significant constraints on the the um on on this as well in the sense that just to look at her story she remains a marginal character through most of her life she's she kind of she finds um a sort of a, a comfort and a and an ease traveling in homosocial worlds at times but she's also regarded as an as an oddity as a curiosity as as a as a kind of a freak in many ways it's, i mean i i make that comparison in the book about her performance on on stage and and the other performers who were also exhibiting their their bodies at at the same time in the late 19th century um and so i think if you look at some of the laws and statutes that are passed and some of the treatment of other characters we know who were living out alternative gender identities are passing as as men in those years you know they they came in for for pretty critical treatment and um you know found found life to be challenging and 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 complicated so yeah i think it's very true to say that this is a story about possibility and and firm limits and of course i think things change and ideas about gender and um kind of respectability become more uh, become more sort of firm in their their binaries the more you know as time goes on so as as some of these communities are are, are settled and infrastructures are created you know the the codes of of normal cultural um the kind of the, the, what equates to being normal in the sort of cultural architecture also becomes more concretely defined and more more um monolithically de- defined as as her story continues so you know she she's regarded as a curiosity but then you know people then start to become more critical of her 
um, particularly in in her in her later years. Um, so yeah, I think it it's it's a really important and and timely project. I think that that really deserves more scrutiny by by historians and and particularly historians with a sophisticated understanding of sort of gender and and and, and cultural parameters yeah and uh another another thing that i i found that the book did really well was was you know you you kind of point out that for a long time in the the historiography of calamity jane you know writers and scholars they they would talk about uh uh martha cannery you know wearing men's buckskin pants for instance and they would either treat it kind of as a, a curiosity or something that wasn't really central to the story and and you 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 say no there's something here there's something that's really worth paying attention to in 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 the the the, the performance that that jane is putting putting on here and mm-hmm. I, I i appreciated that i thought that that was that was a, 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 i understood what you were going for i thought yeah. it's it's funny you know because <laughs> there are so many things that change about how she's presented but that's the one thing that doesn't change you know, and so that you know that there, there's some, there's sort of a, a firmament in in that costume that I think is is really meaningful. So you alluded to this a moment ago, but in the 1880s and 1890s, uh, Calamity Jane really, you know, she becomes Calamity Jane in a new way. She becomes more more legitimately famous as, you know, really a worldwide figure during these decades. How does this happen? How does she go from being sort of, you know, somewhat of, uh, I think the term you use is, is a curiosity in camps and in army, you know, like scouting units mm. and things, to becoming really, you know, an, an early American. American celebrity. Tell us about the early days of Jane as a Western celebrity and how she reacted to this newfound status. Sure, sure. Well, often people attribute uh, this, her sort of explosion on the national stage, if you like, as the result of her appearance in dime novels. And, and she does. She she stars, She she's written into dime novels as a, as a figure. Uh, yeah, again, a kind of a curious, curious heroine. Um, from the late 1870s, she is especially important as the sidewick, sidekick to Deadwood Dick in Edward Wheeler's novels. So she appears in about 22 of those, which are it was it was surprises me how popular these these um, these pulp fictions were because they're I, I mean I, maybe it's just me, but I find them really hard to read. And they're quite confusing and the plots twist and turn and then, you know, she'll be killed off, but then she won't be killed off. And, you know, there there are no no plot limits in the dime novel, which, you know, it's quite sort of a postmodern medium, I suppose, um, for that reason. But she, she certainly gets a national airing because of this genre, which is massively popular in the urban industrial east from the 1860s and Tales of the West are probably one of the most important staples of uh, dime novel literature. Uh, so th- so this is important, I think, in, in sort of fomenting her as a national star, even an international star. Where I think the, the stepping point comes, though, from 
the camp stories in the, in the, the military world to the dime novel is there's there's a whole chatter in the regional press and newspapers and and some um, you know early early literature as well uh, that that keeps picking up on her story. She's a she's a she seems like a, a go to character if there's a slow news day or hey you know Clamty Jane has rocked up in town. What's she going to do now? She's going to you know get drunk and cause trouble. Is she going to um, make a lot of noise? Is she going to you know? shoot off her, her guns she's you know she's a really uh recognizable figure and a sort of a, a a symbol of that unruly westernness for uh and and just kind of gold for for the regional press because you know she's sort of semi-tragic but semi-heroic um and you know and certainly not a run-of-the-mill uh, uh, character, so I think these this this world of um, regional regional press plays an Im- important point, and certainly she. But but it's you know that within the the, the context of the the dime novel, then there's a sort of an exchange between these different versions of her through the the eighteen eighties, which she. She she plays on and she tries to um, make the most of this this growing celebrity by, you know, telling her stories if people buy her a drink at the bar, and uh, you know she she in in a sense I think through her whole life she's performed this role as she's travelling through the real west and so it's not too much of a a step for her to get onto a stage and do the same thing when, when she's in, invited to travel as part of a, a dime museum, so sort of a live-action version of the dime novel in the mid-1890s uh, 18, and 18, 1896. So she's, you know, she's, um, she's trying to... to, to make the most of this celebrity status it? you know it provides some money um but it's not a very sustainable way of making a living and of course she's you know she she's had this hand-to-mouth existence she's got a, a, a you know a significant developing alcohol problem um she's she's quite a she's not you know a rootless person and uh, you know this this it it's hard to keep all of these balls in the air and 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 make everything work for her. So and, I, and you know I think the 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 different the paths of celebrity. For instance, when that they they require a you know the performance requires a more much more rigid um, choreography on the stage compared to wandering around in an impromptu way and I think maybe that that just that doesn't fit her character profile um very well but I think she is an interesting figure because of the way she is trying to trade on her story and selling photographs of herself in Yellowstone and and going on the stage and giving interviews with 
with journalists to try to kind of put her side of, of things. Um, yeah, and and the fact that so much of this doesn't always match up, I just think makes it all the more fascinating. And you mentioned uh, Jane as a, a bit of a tragic character or a tragic you know, person, we could say, um, a, a few minutes ago. And indeed, Martha Jane Cannery dies fairly young at the age of 47 in yeah. 1903. What was the end of her life like? And why was she rather famously buried next to Wild Bill Hickok, a man who, by all accounts, she only knew for a couple months, about 20 years earlier? Mm. So, yeah, I think the the... The, the the you know the last the last months of her life really show us the the flip side of this the celebrity story you know it's, this is a figure who's um you know been whose whose body has been ravaged by uh drinking too much by living a really hard life by just basically being um transient for for the for the whole of her existence pretty much and she um yeah she you know she's basically physically broken by the age of of, of 47 um and 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 dies ultimately as a as a result of um of of alcohol um uh, abuse so she's you know she's um she really points to the, the 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 really tough existence for um well i guess for a, a whole bunch of people in in the 19th century american west but particularly for those who are operating outside of those normative cultural boundaries you know she's um you know she she dies young and she dies in poverty um and the fact she ends up in Mount Moriah in 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 uh, Deadwood next to Wild Bill is is just a, another really um, bizarre twist in her mythological story because she yeah you're right she she rides into Deadwood in 1876 as part of Hickok's entourage and they you know they sort of fan the the fires of each other's celebrity. Um, and hang out for a, a couple of months um, and, until he's killed, which kind of puts puts an end to to that. Um, but the, the and you know we don't really know why she ends up being buried next to him. But the suggestion is is that the the town boosters on 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 one hand they thought it would be. It would be a neat tourist attraction to have these two great Western heroes buried side by side, you know, because by that point, this is a a town with, um, you know, that's, that's, that's stepping away from its frontier reputation to forge, forge a more sort of established and safe um, uh, 20, uh, 20th century um prosperous existence and 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 this throwback to the the wild days of old you know this 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 presents the opportunity to to entice tourists um in with with this this dual hit of um 
of 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 celebrity um uh celebrity tourism um certainly in very 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 much towards the the end of her life uh, martha canary does make the odd comment about having a relationship with wild bill which again there's no no evidence that this was was actually the case but she yeah she sort of throws this stuff out there i think to see if maybe to see what lands and what works as a as a good media nugget and so so that people start picking up on on that story um but it is you know it's um it's it's a real indication of of that sense of the west being a physical space but a, a space that's in in the throes of its own self invention just at the same time you know the gap between uh history and and um sort of commemoration and and uh, spectacular commemoration and, and invention is is you know it's wafer thin in in uh, temporal terms and then for several decades after her, her death in 1903, Hollywood regularly placed Jane at the center of Westerns. Uh, indeed, she, she's a, a sort of a, a regular figure in the genre's heyday in its early days of the kind of classic Westerns, um, as well as she pops up in some more atypical roles, too. So how did the mid-20th century film industry add to and or, you know, in some cases play upon uh, Calamity Jane's mythology? Mm. So she's she's... As a Hollywood character, she's interesting, I think, because she doesn't really have much of a, a trace in the early years of of film, but certainly in the mid-century with The Plainsman and, of course, with, with Doris Day's um, Calamity Jane. So Jean Arthur plays, uh, plays her in The Plainsman and then Doris Day famously in the 1953 musical. These These two... Films are probably her most important outings, and they they're both significant for uh, again she's buckskin costumed um, uh, as as per usual, but she's and particularly in in the nineteen fifty three musical she's her character is softened and feminized and. You know she's she's very much um, playing foil to the to the lead characters who are who are men, um, and and so she's you know she's been tamed for the screen in 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 some ways the the more complicated and interesting parts of her story um, ironed out by celluloid. So she's you know present presenting a story in the end about containment um I mean of course you know there are lots of alternative readings particularly of the 1953 um musical because of the relationship between the two lead female characters particularly um and the nature of their relationship romantic or, or otherwise so there's there's a there's a sort of bubbling under um intriguing tale there but certainly on the sort of the the, the mainstream um presentation it's you know the taming of taming of calamity jane calamity jane settles down 
in a in a in a in an overally sort of tamed west and she she puts away the buckskin but it, but even from the start you know she's Doris Day's fresh face you you know you wouldn't you wouldn't mistake her for a man she is you know worlds away from the historical calamity who's 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 known as quite a stout figure a, a quite an imposing figure quite tall um you know doris day's calamity is is she's she's got this sort of 1950s glow around her and she doesn't drink alcohol um and you know everything apparently at least um resolves wonderfully at, at the end with her settling down so i guess what hollywood does is they they look yeah they they look to find a historical uh, image that that ha- has a bit of an edge to it and has a, has a bit of um a pluckiness to it but ultimately fits with um a story of com- conformity that matches the the you know the the mid-century moral landscape In the, the the book comes with a, a wonderful uh, photo uh, insert section, and one of the captions for I think it's the last photo in that section, which is a, a, a screenshot of um, David Milch's HBO Deadwood series from the early twenty first century. And the caption that you wrote for that is something along the lines of um, Robin Wiegert as uh, a gritty calamity Jane for the twenty first century, or something like mm. that. And I really like I really like that caption because I think it gets at an interesting point which is that every era kind of remakes calamity jane to suit their own desires and needs and and interests and political and social uh uh predilections i guess Mm. and that 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 one line kind of kind of stuck with me that yeah calamity jane is this sort of recurring figure in american uh uh history and, and storytelling for that very reason and you talking about doris day's calamity jane in the 1950s was sort of a reminder of that for me as well mm. and yeah you, you know you can you compare the calamity jane of milch's deadwood to the 1953 musical it's 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 uh it's it's a pretty contrasting <laughs> image and it i mean i find it yeah. really it just shows the malleability i think of of the frontier story more generally, um, perhaps, and, and the way that the West has been manufactured and and recast for different audiences. But I think you know, Calamity Jane is is such a great example of um, of that in terms of the you know the the story of an individual, the mythology of an in, of an individual, and I think she's particularly interesting in that regard because you know most of the tales of western heroes even the recycling of western heroes has tended to be the recycling of 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 male figures so aside from probably annie oakley who's who's sometimes confused with calamity jane or that they sort of become a, a an all-purpose um f- frontier firearms heroine um apart from her you know there there aren't really any of the obvious contenders who've got that longevity and that uh richly layered folklore that 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 actually is probably more um telling and uh, uh, worth um delving into uh 
um, than, than some than some of the other hero figures about which so much more is 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 being written and um, and broadcast. And I think that the twenty first century or late twentieth century and twenty first century profile of her is particularly striking for the way in which she becomes um, a figure of choice for female playwrights who are looking to tell stories about feminism and um, sort of struggle and um, the you know the sort of boundaries of 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 gender containment and sexual politics and, and, and all sorts of things so I was you know really struck by the by the by the amount of sort of creative and very poignant work that's that's been produced um recently if there is and, and i always hesitate to ask this question or, or maybe it's better to say that that I, I find that my guests they kind of bristle at this question a little bit because it can be a, a, a difficult one but if there's one thing that you hope readers come away from your book understanding or thinking about what might that be if there's one sort of sort of overarching theme or message what do you hope that your readers understand about calamity jane and about the story that you tell here Okay, well, I've, I'm gonna. I'm sort of torn, torn between two. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna throw both of them out there. <laughs> so, <sounds good. laughs> so the so the first one I think is that it has her tale is it it shows the sort of the heroism of the everyday, especially for people who were operate operating outside of the of the normative confines of of life. Um, and yeah, that resilience and struggle. Yeah, I've I've been excited to cover this book since I first heard about it. So it was it was a pleasure to have you on. Dr. Karen Jones is a professor of environmental and cultural history at the University of Kent in Canterbury. Her latest book is Calamity: The Many Lives of Calamity Jane, which came out in 2020 from Yale University Press. Thank you once again so much for joining me today, Karen. 